knocked on the door and said, wise one, here, here is a whisker from a ferocious mountain lion. Now give you my love potion so I may give it to my stepson. Oh, where, oh, where, oh, where is my love? It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. And today on the show, you know, families come in all shapes and sizes. And we're going to bring you stories of kind of unconventional families today. There's the story of the lion's whisker told by Len Cabral about a young boy and his new stepmother and how a fearsome lion helps bring them together. And you'll hear the tale of the improbable love of Ethel and Elmer, two creatures in love whose families are doing all they can to keep them apart. A story told by Barry Stewart Mann. And you'll hear a story called Boundless Strength, a tale told by Motoko about a young man on his way to becoming a new father and all the fear and anticipation that comes along with that. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Samantha Danes, one of our assistant producers. Samantha, it's great to have you with me. Good to be here. And let's talk a little bit about this Len Cabral story. I got to tell you, Len Cabral is, I, I could just listen to him and listen to him and listen to him. He has such a playful, fun, even dangerous delivery sometimes. It's always such a pleasure to hear Len tell a story. Tell us about this one. Yeah, I love this story. I think it's so sweet and tender. Um, this is about a young boy and his relationship with his stepmother. Yeah. Um, and her attempts to um, get along with this boy and to get this boy to like her. And it just yeah. reminds me of all, all the blended families I know and all the and how happy and content they are and, and how blended families can be a really wonderful thing. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes how tricky love relationships are, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes yeah. it's hard to know what love looks like. <laughs> and and you get some of that in this story. It's a it it's a real example to me of uh, of a story that in a really uh delightful way, right? And in a way that's easy to swallow and a- against which you wouldn't naturally throw up a lot of defenses, right? you can talk about some really serious things with a metaphor or with a story that's right and we we talk about that all the time we talk about the uses of story in the world and the notion that you can take a story and tell the story and 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 unpack all of the things in the story in a way that you know that 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 might be difficult to do if you were just conversing head-on you Mm -hmm. know Well, The Lion's Whisker is the name of the tale. And again, it's Len Cabral, the wonderful Rhode Island storyteller, telling it. And we're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Once, there was this boy who was about 10 years old, and his mother died. He was sad that she died. He was angry that she died and he was confused about her death. And after about a year's time, his father remarried. He married a woman whose name was Sonia, and Sonia was as beautiful as the morning sun. And Sonia, she loved the boy very much. But the boy, he, he, he did not return that love to Sonia, for he was still sad that his mother died. He was angry that she died. He was confused about her death, and now he felt threatened by Sonia's presence. 
and he felt his father would not love him as much because of Sonia. Though Sonia, she loved the boy very, very much. She'd make beautiful clothing for the boy. The boy would wear the clothing and run through the briars and rip them. She'd make wonderful meals for the boy. The boy would not touch the food. Try as she would, she could not win this boy's love. One morning, the father went hunting. Sonia said, today, I'm going to talk to my stepson about our feelings toward one another. For I love him dearly, and I need for him to return that love to me. And Sonia walked into that boy's room, and he was sitting on his cot. And before Sonia could breathe out a word, that boy jumped off the cot and said, I hate you. You're not my real mother. I hate you. I'll never love you. I'm running away. And he ran away. This crushed Sonia. She sat down and she cried and she cried. Finally, her husband came home and she said, Our son, he ran away. Well, the father went down to the riverbank where many of the boys and girls would go and spend time. And sure enough, the boy was there throwing rocks into the water. He wasn't trying to make them skip or anything. He wasn't even throwing flat rocks, throwing round rocks. The father placed an arm over the boy's shoulder and sat down on a log next to the boy. And they talked for a long, long time. And after a long time, they walked home arm in arm. When they got home, Sonia had prepared a wonderful meal for them. They ate of that meal. And then they all went to their rooms, all except Sonia. Sonia left that house. She walked out of the village, down a dirt road, into the bush. Sonia went to the home of the wise one. Now, a wise one is a man or woman of the village who knows the ways of the mind as well as the ways of the heart. Sonia said, wise one. You must give me a love potion so I may give it to my stepson so he will learn to love me. For I love him dearly and I need for him to return that love to me. The wise one looked at Sonia and said, First, you must bring me a whisker from a ferocious mountain lion. Come again? I said, you must bring me a whisker from a ferocious mountain lion. But how can I do that? Use your wits. Well, Sonia, she returned home, and she thought about that all night long. All night long she thought and she thought. And finally, in the morning, she came up with a plan. For you see, the morning is wiser than the evening. Sonia left that house, and she took with her a sack. And in that sack, she placed four pieces of meat. Sonia walked away from the village, through the lowlands, to the highlands, to the mountains, until she came to the cliffs. And she saw a cave, and she said, Surely there must be a ferocious mountain lion living in that cave. And Sonia reached into that sack and took out that first piece of meat, placed it in front of the cave, and Sonia went back 100 yards, and she hid in the bushes. And sure enough, a ferocious mountain lion came out of that cave, smelled the meat, ate the meat, and went back into the cave. Sonia reached into that sack and took out that second piece of meat, 
placed it in front of the cave. And Sonia went back 50 yards. But this time she did not hide in the bushes. The mountain lion came out of the cave, smelled the meat, looked at Sonia, ate the meat, and went back into the cave. Sonia reached into that sack and took out that third piece of meat, placed it in front of the cave, and went back 20 yards. The mountain lion came out of the cave, looked right at Sonia. Sonia was frightened. She was shaking like a leaf. But she was a brave woman. The mountain lion smelled the meat, ate the meat, and went back into the cave. Sonia reached into that sack, took out that last piece of meat, placed it in front of the cave, and took two steps back. The mountain lion came out of that cave, looked right at Sonia, smelled the meat, and started to eat the meat. Sonia inched forward, leaned over, reached out, grabbed the hole of one of the whiskers, and pulled. The mountain lion was still eating the meat. Sonia inched away. When she got around a clump of bushes, she ran and she ran and she ran all the way back to the wise one's house. Knocked on the door and said, wise one, here, here is a whisker from a ferocious mountain lion. Now give you my love potion so I may give it to my stepson so he will learn to love me. For I love him dearly and I need for him to return that love to me. The wise one reached over and took that whisker from Sonia and said, indeed, this is a whisker from a ferocious mountain lion. Yes, it is. Now give me my love potion. And the wise man looked at her and said, I'll not give you a love potion. <gasps> but you said, you said, and the wise one silenced her and said, you must approach your stepson the same way you approached the lion. Sonia thought about that. And she said, you mean slowly and patiently? And the wise one nodded. And Sonia returned home. And she did approach her stepson slowly, patiently. And after about three weeks, the boy started to smile at her. In six weeks' time, he'd help her out around the house. In eight weeks' time, they'd go for long walks and share stories. In ten weeks' time, he showed her how to skip rocks across the water, the nice flat rocks. In twelve weeks' time, they became best of friends. That boy never forgot his real mother. But now, he found room in his heart to love his stepmother also. And that's the story of the lion's whisker.
The Lion's Whisker, a story told for you by Len Cabral here on The Appleseed. Listening to it, not only with you, but also with one of our assistant producers, Samantha Danes. Samantha, tell me what you love about that story. It's so sweet. I just get so happy at the end <laughs> with the the boy and his mother, stepmother becoming such good friends. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, that's such a great way to teach kids Yeah, that those types of relationships can be so good is by using a story that they can understand. Because right. I, I feel like most commonly you see the stepmother as like a, a Cinderella stepmother. Right, or like in the a evil storytelling stepmother. environment mm-hmm. in which there's so there, there are so many evil stepmothers, right? Yeah. I have a stepmother and she used to sign, and we've always had a great relationship. She used to always sign letters to me, E-S, evil stepmother. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but I listen to this story and I hear that word. There's there's such meaning, you know. It resonates so strongly with me, the word that he uses, which is the word friends, you know. Mm-hmm. And the boy never forgets his mother and finds room in his heart for his for a great relationship with his stepmother too. And and that that's a lesson that we so often learn. We we sometimes close off our hearts to people for whom there is in fact room in our hearts, right? Yeah. I I think it's such a great way to tell that kind of story. Yeah. Well, it's such a pleasure to hear that tale. Thanks for bringing it to us, Samantha. Anytime. And there's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard the story The Lion's Whisker by Len Cabral. And coming up we're going to hear The Improbable Love of Ethel and Elmer, a story told for you by Barry Stewart Mann. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes spark a thought for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine. It's a radio memory. today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I remember delivering something to Larry Gentry's house some years ago, an invitation to a church dinner or something. Larry was a good neighbor, and as a good neighbor, he invited me in for a dish of ice cream. And there are a lot worse ways to spend a few minutes in an evening than having a dish of ice cream across the table from Larry Gentry. Larry and I are related, I guess. Pete, my beagle, long gone now, was the father of some puppies that live at Larry's house. Larry, it turns out, worked long ago for a number of years at, of all places, a radio station. So we talked about it for a while. On the Appleseed, I sit mostly behind a microphone and a computer screen. I click around with a mouse, recording stories and editing them and preparing each episode of this show. In Larry's radio days, the disc jockey sat in a room surrounded by machines that bore huge reels of black magnetic tape, each pair of them rolling silently around, except when they clicked loudly to a stop or to a start. No computer screens or computer mice. The songs that Larry played weren't stored in a digital library, but on deep shelves packed with vinyl records. 
In those days, the DJs would spend part of their time on the air and part of their time sweeping up or changing the paper towels in the restrooms, whatever they needed to do. The station where he worked was located in a little building by the bowling alley in the middle of town, right behind an old cafe. And those buildings are all gone now. There's a bank on that property in these days. Well, the ice cream was sweet and plentiful as Larry and I talked, and between bites he wondered aloud if I was actually interested in hearing about any of what he called this old stuff. And it made me remember my grandfather. My grandfather, my father's father, worked for Walt Disney as a young man. He photographed the painted cells that made up cartoons. He shot every frame of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He worked on Fantasia. He photographed a handful of cartoon shorts during his time there. When we were kids, and he already an old man, he'd tell us about the big camera that he used to operate, about how he invented a way to shrink a series of drawings that had been painted too large for a particular shot. He told us about delivering cartoon reels to Los Angeles area theaters and about seeing an audience torn between watching a Mickey Mouse cartoon and leaving the theater during a Los Angeles earthquake. When we were kids, he would give us frames from cartoon reels, frames that had been left on the cutting room floor as the old cartoons were assembled. And once as a very old man, he told us about going back to Disney Studios for a visit. Many years after he'd left them for other things. On that visit, he shared with the animators at the studios many of the stories that he'd shared with us. And surprisingly, they were as fascinated with them as we had been. Apparently, in the daily grind of getting cartoons made and in the updating of methods and equipment that had been part of the business for years, the way things had been done in the old days had been lost even to memory. And that seemed a shame to me. Much of that old knowledge and experience died with my grandfather. Some of it lives on in what he left behind, but only bits and pieces. I always leave thoughts of my grandfather resolved to do a little more to capture some of that stuff, what Larry Gentry called this old stuff, before it goes away. And over ice cream, I told Larry about a lot of those memories, the memories of my grandfather as he helped make those old cartoons that people still watch today. And he told me about his family stories, not just radio stuff, but stories even older. It was a lot to take in between spoonfuls of ice cream on an evening that had as its purpose the simple delivery of an invitation to a church dinner. And in the end, I can't even remember the church dinner, but I can remember that evening at Larry's table. And all this, I guess, is just a long way of saying, yeah, Larry and all the Larrys, I am, when it comes down to it, interested in this old stuff, as you called it. Share more with me of the way things once were done. Let those things I'm too young to have lived somehow find a place in my memory. Let not those worlds blow away, forgotten into the past. They're too useful to me, as I navigate a world that is different in a lot of ways from yours, but the same in a lot of ways, too. And even let me, as I sit here before the microphone and computer screen, imagine huge reels of black magnetic tape, each pair of them rolling silently around, except when they click loudly to a stop or to a start. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. 
Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. And coming up in just a little bit, you're going to hear a story from Motoko, a story called Boundless Strength, about a young man on his way to becoming a new father. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through the things that we see on screen, the things we read in books, the songs we listen to, the great radio and podcasts that we consume, and of course, through the tales that we tell around the kitchen table or the living room or the campfire. One of my favorite ways to get stories deep down inside me, stories that I can access when I need them, is through the eating of great food with people that I love, and which uh, is why I'm so thrilled to have uh, behind the microphone with me Colton Solberg, one of the partners in the Heirloom Restaurant Group, emphasis on group. These are restaurants all over the place that serve just, oh gosh, food I can't even talk about without getting emotional <laughs> a little bit. Colton, it's great to have you with Thanks, us. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be with you. <laughs> and I think, you know, you get to, you, you certainly uh, uh, develop, may we even say invent, sure. and prepare and serve lots and lots and lots of food. You, but you also eat, right? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of eating. <laughs> and and yeah. you've eaten all over the world uh, and certainly prepared a lot of meals at, at home, you know, at yeah. home and abroad. Sure. And uh, I, I'm wondering if somebody like you, who has such a deep, rich knowledge of the way food is put together, what it can do in a person's life, has kind of some meaningful food experiences, meals that you've eaten that are like the meal you'll always remember. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first one that comes to mind, I was a young cook at the time. I'm in early 20s. I'd been cooking more intentionally, right? I'd been doing it. You know, I started out doing some cooking early in my career when I was in high school, but most at that time it was just a job. Yeah. But at this point in my career, it was something like, you know, I had made the decision, like, this is what I want to do. So I was... I'd been working in a couple of different places. I'd been cooking for maybe, I don't know, three or four years at the time and, and was serious about it. Yeah. And I happened to be going on a trip with a good friend of mine and we were going out to San Francisco. His cousin had an apartment there and, and had a, you know, a room that we could come stay in. So yeah. we were going to go there for a few days. And, um, and you, you, I, you know, he'd been working, he'd worked in a restaurant as well in the front of house and as a waiter. And so, you know, we both, you know, we both like food. We'd like having experiences together around food. And so we, we knew we wanted to eat at some great places, but at this point in my career, I didn't, I mean, I just didn't know that much. I, I didn't know much outside of kind of the sphere that I was in, in yeah. terms of like what was out there and what was great and what was possible even for that matter. And so I, I, I happened to just kind of in passing was talking to one of the chefs, that I worked with and I said, Hey, we're going out to San Francisco. Is there any place that we really just have to eat at? Yeah. And he said, yeah, you got to check out this place called the French laundry. I hadn't heard about it. You know, this is, I mean, these are like, this was back, this would have been back in like maybe late nineties, maybe early two thousands. Um, you know, like pre real cell phone. I mean, pre any kind of like food network kind of a lot of, I mean, just a lot of the access that we have now to yeah. finding out what's great and and, and and more readily. You have to learn what you, you yeah. have to learn what you come to love through the people who tell you about yeah. it. Right? Yeah. And so we had picked up, I think on the way out, we picked up, um, I think it was Gourmet's uh, magazine. They do like the best, the best restaurants. In, in, and so we had picked it up. It was like their restaurant issue. And uh, so just very fortuitous that it happened to be kind of come out right before our trip. So we picked it up and on the way out, we'd be reading about different places. And we, so we read about French Laundry, and, you know, we were reading, like, within its region, like, in the Northern California region, it had won, like, five of the ten awards, like, yeah. the best in five of the ten categories. 
And we were like, you know, just kind of blown away. So we didn't think much of it. We'd gone to San Francisco and on our way back, we were going to, we thought, you know, on the way back, we were going to stop in Reno with another uh, relative. And so that day we would be essentially driving from San Francisco to Reno. And so we thought that would be a good day to stop in the French laundries in Napa Valley, in Yauntville specifically. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll stop there and, you know, we'll be able to have this meal and it'll be great. Yeah. Uh, not really thinking, you know, we're young at the time and not really thinking much of it. So we go, we drive out there. It's beautiful. I mean, the setting is so amazing. You're in like, you're in wine country. It's just, it's just gorgeous rolling hills. I mean, just a beautiful setting, uh, beautiful temperature, beautiful weather. And so we roll into town. It's a really small, quaint town. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we go, we drive, we kind of go get over there. We find out they, they open for dinner at like five or five 30. And so we drive up, I think a couple hours before they opened, kind of just feeling like, well, we'll just knock on the door and say, hey, can we come eat? Right. Um, and, you know, come to find out, it's like, you know, they, they book like months in advance. <laughs> and so we're there and we're kind of feeling like, geez, what do we do? We end up just going, you know, we just go up kind of hat in hand and say, you know, we do. We knock on the door. We op- They're not open yet. And we're like, you know, we want to come in for dinner. And they're kind of like, you know, they're very very gracious and kind um, and ultimately work it out that we can, they can get us in that night. They just huh. find a way to squeeze us in. And um, I don't think we realized at the time how lucky we were for that to happen. Sure. But we're yeah. like, you know, we were these two people from this restaurant in Utah and, you know, we drove all the way out here and, you know, they were, <laughs> they were gracious. So they say, okay, we can get you in on the patio, you know, at five 30, like right when they open. But you have to go. My my friend at the time was wearing jeans, I think, and so they're like, "We have a no denim policy, so you have to go change." And we're like, "Okay, great." So we go change, and we're you know, you know, putzing around town until five thirty. We come back, and they sit us outside in the patio, and it's beautiful. And we were sitting outside right next to the kitchen. The kitchen was a, a very big kitchen. Um, we saw, you know, I think about a third of the way into our meal, we saw Bill Gates walk in with like four <laughs> or five people. You know, we kind of look at each other and we're like. Okay. About 20 or 30 minutes later, we see Martha Stewart walk by. Oh, wow. She ends up walking out. I joke now because she was in, she's, she wears a lot of denim and she was yeah, in full right. denim. And yeah. I was like, yeah, they probably just turned her away because she wasn't all denim. Um, we never saw her come back. So I don't know what happened. But, um, so I think that all of a sudden we're like, geez, what, what is this place that we're at? Like we somehow stumbled in and we're just fortuitous enough to, to get, to get in. And they were just so gracious throughout the whole meal. Um, and eventually, you know, took us back in the kitchen and we got to meet the team. And I think when I left that experience, it, it totally broadened. You know, if I think about what my perspective was at that point on what was possible with food, yeah. it, it, it literally blew my mind and blew open that perspective to a new reality of like, no, you can touch people in a way and have experiences in a way that I never even considered. I didn't even believe, I didn't even know at that point were possible. Yeah. And, um, you know, to this day, this, that was, that would have been close to 20 years ago. I still have that close, but I keep it in my desk at work to remind me that just of what's possible. I mean, at that point it was so powerful that I didn't have a cell phone at the time. We stopped at the local grocery store in town so I could on a payphone call my parents (laughs) and just tell them about it because it was so, it was just so empowerful to me. And so, um, yeah, I still remember that meal 
to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, if you have a meal that has been important to you, you know, then you're like everybody else. Everybody has deep memories associated with food. Those memories are worth talking about as you sit around and talk to the people that you love. It's been my pleasure to chat just a little bit with Colton Solberg. Colton, thanks for joining us here on the Advocacy. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Always a pleasure to chat with Colton Solberg about a food memory. Maybe you can think of some food memories of your own. Those are worth sharing as stories with the people that you love. Coming up, you're going to hear a story from Barry Stewart Mann called The Improbable Love of Ethel and Elmer. Stick around. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to be with you today on this hour of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Colton Solberg, a food memory. We love to have conversations with friends about the way that stories get down into their lives. And coming up, we've got a story from Barry Stewart Mann. It's a tale of love that survives against impossible odds. It's a play on the old time-honored tale of two people who fall in love even though they're from different worlds, Romeo and Juliet, Tarzan and Jane. It's a love story that, by all accounts, shouldn't work out, and yet somehow it does. And what makes these two lovers so different from one another? Well, that's the story. Here's Barry Stewart Mann with The Improbable Love of Ethel and Elmer here on The Appleseed. The Improbable Love of Ethel and Elmer One day, a lonely young fellow went wandering through the woods, as lonely as a lonely young fellow could be. As he ambled, he felt himself as limp and lifeless as a liquid-laden leaf, and he kept his head bowed down and his eyes on the ground ahead of him, so that he barely espied the blue skies above, and every so often he sighed with a whispering cry, His name was Elmer. It just so happened that not so very far away, in the very same forest, by coincidence, on the same day, there was a beautiful young creature walking along with a heavy, heavy heart. And with each step, her feet felt heavier beneath her. And every so often she stopped and looked up to the heavens and heaved with a mournful wail. Oh, where? Oh, where? Oh, where is my love? Her name was Ethel. Now it just so happened, by chance, that on this day Ethel and Elmer appeared at opposite edges of the very same clearing, of the very same forest, at the very same moment. And the instant they saw each other, their hearts were filled with light. Elmer had never seen anyone like Ethel before. She had big, dark eyes, as dark and bright as the moon, and a smile that stretched from ear to ear, and a long, elegant, no, not just elegant, a majestic nose, and beautiful ears that were obviously made for listening, and a thick, silvery coat that was a little worn and frayed at the edges, so that he knew she was someone who loved to frolic and play. But what he loved most of all was the sheer weight of her. 
Oh, this was no thin, frail, speckled creature, but obviously someone of substance. And as he gazed upon her, he thought to himself, What a beautiful creature! And Ethel had never seen anyone like Elmer before either. He cut such a striking figure, so lean and trim, and the way he moved, like a dancer, no, not like a dancer, like a river, and his skin, so soft and shimmering and translucent, and not at all hardened with worry or weather. Oh, he was obviously a very sensitive soul, and not the least bit blown up or full of himself. But what she loved most of all was how grounded he was. Definitely someone in touch with the earth and the things that mattered most in life. And as she gazed upon him, she thought to herself, What a handsome fellow! And Elmer said, Hello! And Ethel said, Hello, my name is Ethel. My name is Elmer. What are you doing? Oh, I was just taking a walk. So was I. Shall we walk together? Oh, yes, I would like that. And so they walked, slowly and awkwardly and tentatively at first, each sensing the other's natural rhythm and gait. And as they walked, they talked and talked and talked and talked and talked, until soon it was as if they talked with one voice. I've found you. I've found you. I've found you, my love. And that was how it all began. That was how the improbable love of Ethel the elephant and Elmer the earthworm first began. And from that moment on, they were inseparable. They spent long hours exploring each other and the forest world they shared. Ethel would perch Elmer on her forehead, where he could see for yards around in every direction, and where he could whisper sweet endearments in her ear. And, of course, she heard every word. And she took him on long jaunts through the forest. With Ethel... Elmer went places he had never been before and would never be able to go without her. And as much as he loved their long hikes, even so he delighted in wriggling over the vast expanse of Ethel's body, every centimeter of her, from the tip of her trunk to her tiny, tiny tail. And he would furrow deep in her hide and, suffice it to say, wherever he touched her, she tingled. Their improbable love grew and grew against all odds until the time came that Ethel wanted to take Elmer back to the elephant pond to meet her family. And Elmer wanted Ethel to stop by the little patch of earth where the earthworms kept their burrows to meet his. And that was when the trouble began. As the great bard once wrote, the course of true love never did run smooth. At the elephant pond, Voices trumpeted forth in disapproval. Ethel, he has no tusks. Ethel, he'll never amount to anything. You'll eat dirt for the rest of your life. Ethel, you need someone with a backbone. Meanwhile, back at the little patch of earth where the earthworms had their burrows, everyone was squirming with consternation. Elmer, how will you support her? She'll eat you out of house and home. Elmer, she's so loud. Elmer, if she sets foot in this house, it will...
will be over my dead body. But Ethel and Elmer were not to be deterred. They continued to explore each other and their forest world, and their love grew and grew. She would take him to the muddy waters at one end of the elephant pond and place him on the snout of her trunk and then unleash an endless slurf of water and Elmer would have the body surf of his life into the middle of the pond and he would give her painstakingly attentive pedicures and, of course, he scratched her every itch. And he led her on excursions into the denser parts of the forest through tight thickets where he helped her to crouch and crawl with caution and care. With Ethel in his life, Elmer felt like a giant, and he began to see the world as a place of endless dimension and possibility, because that's what love will do to you. And with Elmer, Ethel began to have an appreciation for the smaller things in life, and she gained a tenderness and a sensitivity that she had never had before, because that's what love will do to you. As their love grew, so did their parents' anxiety and concern, until finally their love became too great a threat to the natural order of things. One day, the earthworm elders assembled and exclaimed, Elmer, you are forbidden to see her ever again. She's not good enough for you. Stick to your own kind. Listen to your parents. Elmer, she's a fat, ugly elephant. And then they put him in his chamber of the burrow and gathered pebbles and grains of sand to fill up the entryway, and then they plugged it tight with a special parental earthworm secretion that quickly dried to form an airtight seal of disapproval. Meanwhile, back at the elephant pond, the bull and cow elephants bellowed in bellicose tones. Ethel, you are forbidden to see him ever again. He's not good enough for you. Stick to your own kind. Listen to your parents. Ethel, he's a slimy little worm. And they gathered strong, thick liana vines, and they lashed her against an enormous banyan tree at the edge of the pond so that she could not move. Thus bereft of one another, Ethel and Elmer became distraught and despondent, and they sighed and whimpered and cried and sobbed. Oh, where? Oh, where? is my love. And Elmer's cries were so loud and sharp and shrill that they pierced the ceiling of his hermetically sealed cell and flew through the forest until they reached Ethel's enormous ears. And when she heard him, she sobbed louder and harder, and her sobs were so strong and violent that they shook the banyan tree and sent tremors raging across the forest floor so that they reached Elmer's cell. And when he felt the tremors, he cried harder. And when she heard those cries, she sobbed with even more force until her anguish caused a veritable earthworm-sized earthquake at the little patch of earth where the earthworms kept their burrows. The walls and ceilings came caving in, and what was once an intricate maze of chambers and tunnels was leveled to a plain of sand and rubble. When Elmer realized what had happened, he began to squirm and wriggle his way up, 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 up through the rubble to the light of day. And then he knew what he must do. He embarked on the arduous journey through the forest to the elephant pond, 
a journey that would have taken all of fifteen minutes on the brow of his beloved. But all alone it was a different story. He crawled for hours and hours, and day became night, and day again, and night, and day, and night, and day, and still he crawled all the time, calling, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, my love. At last he came to the edge of the clearing by the side of the elephant pond, where he was unnoticed by all, except, of course, Ethel. The long minutes it took for him to cross to the banyan tree were insufferable. At last, he arrived within trunk's length, and Ethel reached out and picked him up and said in a hushed elephant whisper, You are here, you are here, you are here, my love. Then she placed him on the liana vines, and Elmer set to work, gnawing through the strands of vine one by one, strand by strand, vine by vine, with his tiny, tiny mouth tendrils, until, at last, the vines loosened and Ethel could pull herself free. Without an instant of doubt, she put Elmer on her brow and then ran, galloped, flew like the wind through the forest away from that place. By the time the bull and cow elephants realized that Ethel was gone, it was too late. But they knew what they must do. It's that little worm. She's run off to be with him. So they stampeded through the forest toward the patch of earth where the earthworms kept their burrows. Whatever had remained of the burrows was now absolutely destroyed by this new stampede, and the earthworms sought safety in the low-lying ferns as the elephants approached. Where is our girl? Where is our boy? If she's hiding here somewhere, we're going to find her. The elephants began to search the area, but the earthworms cried out, They're not here! He's been gone for days! They must have run away! They all looked at one another, elephants and earthworms, big moon eyes and tiny little dot matrix eyes, and their minds were filled with light. And at that moment, they began to think together. One by one, the elephants took the earthworms up on their brows, and they fanned out through the forest, searching for their lost children. Days passed with no success, but on a path through a thickly overgrown place on the edge of the forest where none of them had ever been, the searchers encountered a rhinoceros with a raven sitting on his shoulder. Who are you? Mm, what do you want here? We are looking for our lost children, Ethel. And Elmer. The rhinoceros and the raven looked at each other and then disappeared into the trees. They soon returned, followed by a whole strange menagerie of animals. This is the land of improbable love. My name is Rhonda the Raven. And I am Raoul the Rhinoceros. And then they introduced the others as well. There was Larry the Lungfish and Lucy the Llama, Bessie the Butterfly and Barnett the Barnacle, and Myra the Monkey and Melissa the Mosquito. And coming out last, Ethel. Elmer. We're sorry we ran away. But we need to be together. 
The elephants and earthworms could see that, improbable though it might be, this was indeed love. A strange kind of peace came over the place, and questions were answered, and tears were shed, and laughter was shared in many sizes. And the next day, as Ethel and Elmer watched the parade of their loved ones disappearing down the forest path, they began to do what they had been dreaming of doing since the moment they met. They began to live happily ever after. The Improbable Love of Ethel and Elmer, told for you by Barry Stewart Mann, here on The Apple Seed. And coming up now, we've got a story called Boundless Strength. It's told by Mochiko, the wonderful storyteller and mime. And in this world of sumo wrestling in which the story takes place, we meet a young wrestler down on his luck trying to make his family proud. Will he have the strength to win the tournament and support his family? Here's Motoko with boundless strength here on the apple seed. Hakkeyoi! Nokotta, nokotta! Hakkeyoi! Nokotta, nokotta! During a sumo wrestling match, the referee will shout these words to encourage the wrestlers. Sumo wrestling is Japan's most popular spectator sport. Great big men, each weighing 250 to 500 pounds, would try to push or lift each other off the rounded arena. Sumo wrestling started more than a thousand years ago as a ritual of prayer for the harvest. Then there was a time when sumo wrestling was a part of every warrior's basic training, along with sword fighting and study of classical literature. This story comes from such a time, and is called Boundless Strength. Once upon a time, a long time ago, in Japan, there was a young samurai warrior named Daikichi. He was famous throughout the country for his sumo wrestling skills and strength, and he loyally served his lord in a great big castle. But one year, his lord took ill and passed away. And since his lord did not have an heir, the castle was taken over by another clan, and Daikichi found himself suddenly unemployed. He could not find another job. Daikichi felt depressed and bitter. He started to drink a lot. He spent most of his money gambling and started to pick fights on the street. He felt as if all his strength was draining out of him. One night, Daikichi was slumped over against a wall in the alley because he had no place to go. Then suddenly, he heard some dogs growling and a woman scream. Three wild dogs had cornered a young woman into the alley. Daikichi jumped up and grabbed a stick. He chased the dogs away. The young woman was so grateful 
she invited Daikichi to come to her home and stay. Her name was Kayo. Kayo was a young widow who owned a little tea shop nearby. Daikichi was awed by Kayo's kindness and beauty. She did not seem to care that Daikichi had neither job nor money. Soon, they fell in love. In Kayo's arms, Daikichi felt truly happy. He stopped drinking and gambling and started to help Kayo around the house and in the store. Then one day, Kayo came to him and said, Daikichi-san, I'm pregnant. We are going to have a baby. Daikichi was shocked and he didn't know what to say. What? A, a baby? We can't have a baby like this. I have no job. I have no money. How can I take care of you and the baby? What do you want from me? In a panic, Daikichi ran out of the house. But he had no place to go. He roamed around the city all night and finally ended up in a bar. The bar was crowded with drunken men. Daikichi heard one of them say, Hey, did you hear that the emperor is holding a national sumo wrestling tournament? Yeah, it starts in three days right in the capital city, another man responded. I hear that whoever wins the tournament will be rewarded with a sack of gold, another man chimed in. Daikichi knew right away that that was what he had to do. He left that night and walked for three days to the capital city. The city was crowded with hundreds of strong-looking young men from all over the country. Many of them were lined up in a long line right in front of the emperor's palace. They were waiting for their turn to register their entries. Daikichi joined the line, but as he stood there, he noticed that all the other men looked much more powerful than he was. I mean, he was once well known for his strength, but he had not done any training for a long time. And he felt completely out of shape and out of place. But he knew he needed the gold. As Daikichi stood there waiting, he noticed an old lady coming down the street hurriedly toward him. She was holding a baby. She came straight to him and said, Excuse me, sir, but would you please hold this baby for a while? I will be right back. Would you please promise that you won't drop him or put him down? Now, Daikichi did not know who this old woman was or where she was going or why she had picked him out of this long line of young men, but there was something serious and urgent in her voice. Daikichi simply said, Sure, I'll promise, and willingly took the baby out of her arms. The old woman smiled, and she quickly disappeared in the crowd. Daikichi looked at the baby. It was a tiny newborn. He was sleeping quietly. Then Daikichi felt as if the baby got bigger. He looked down, but the baby had not changed his size. Then Daikichi realized what had happened 
and chills ran down his spine. The baby was not growing bigger, but heavier. He started out weighing no more than seven or eight pounds, but now he weighed 15 pounds, 20 pounds. Pretty soon the baby was 30 pounds, 40 pounds. Daikichi realized that the baby was not human. The old woman was probably a witch trying to trick him. He was ready to drop the baby, but then he remembered his promise. I used to be a samurai, Daikichi said to himself. No, I am still a samurai, and a samurai always keeps his promise. The baby was rapidly gaining weight. Soon it was 50 pounds, then 100 pounds, 150. When the baby reached 200 pounds, Daikichi was no longer able to stand. He knelt down on the ground and felt as if his arms, his shoulders, and his knees were breaking. Sweat poured down his face, and he clenched his teeth tightly. 250 pounds? 300 pounds? 350! He refused to let go. The old woman still did not come back. Meanwhile, the line was moving ahead. Daikichi knew that his turn to register and fight was coming closer. Men lined up behind him impatiently urged him to move on, but he could not budge. Finally, they all started to go past him, laughing at him for bringing a baby to the tournament. Daikichi tried with all his strength not to be overwhelmed by the baby's weight, but the pressure was getting too much to bear. I have made a promise, he kept saying to himself, and I'm going to keep it. He thought he would faint right there. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, the old woman was back. She effortlessly picked up the child from Daikichi's arms and stood tall and straight right in front of him. Daikichi looked up in awe. The old woman said, Thank you so much for keeping your promise. I am Kannon, the goddess who protects this city. Today I had to help this woman give birth to a child. It was a very difficult birth. The baby took so long to come, and that is why I needed your help. If you had dropped the baby, both the mother and the baby would have died. But because you kept your promise, they both survived. As a reward, I am going to give you and all your children boundless strength. Now go ahead and wrestle in the tournament. Then both the old woman and the baby vanished into thin air. Daikichi rose, as if awakened from a dream, and staggered into the palace. But soon he found out it was no dream at all. When he stepped up onto the ring set up on the big stage and faced his opponent, strange power surged through his body. It made him incredibly strong and gentle at the same time. His first opponent, all 300 pounds of muscles, came charging at him, but Daikichi danced around him lightly and blew on him. 
his opponent fell on the seat of his pants. Another, even bigger wrestler stepped up. But Daikichi stomped on the ground just once. The whole arena shook as if there was an earthquake, and the other wrestler immediately fell off the ring. One after another, wrestlers charged, and one after another, Daikichi ejected them from the ring with a mere flip of a finger. By the end of the day, it was clear that Daikichi was the champion. The emperor gave him a big sack of gold. Daikichi was happy not just because of the gold, but also because now he knew he was strong enough to become a father. He hurried back to Kayo, and there they got married and lived happily ever after. And to this day, it is said that the descendants of Daikichi and Kayo always possessed boundless strength. Hakkeyoi! Nokotta, nokotta! Motoko with boundless strength here on the Appleseed. Great to bring you stories today from Barry Stewart Mann, from Len Cabral, and of course there from Motoko. A conversation with Colton Solberg about a food memory. It's been a fun hour here on the Appleseed. It's been my pleasure to spend it with you. And I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.